Amen. All right, Philippians 2, 12 to 18, God's word says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to, to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, when I first moved to Kentucky, when our family first moved to Kentucky, we were eager to get our kids involved in uh, extracurricular activities to help them to adjust, to meet new friends, to make connections. And one of the outlets was through archery. Uh, my son got involved in, in archery. Although this, this hobby only lasted about a year and a half, it was interesting to see the progression of kids when we would go to the different meets. Now, I have to admit something to you this morning. There's nothing quite as boring as a middle school archery meet, right? Anybody with me on that? You pay six bucks to get in, to which like you, you watch your kid shoot for about 15 minutes. We're out probably about $20 for my family to attend. You have to be quiet. You can't cheer. Uh, and these young athletes usually leave frustrated about 99% of the time because they didn't hit that perfect score, right? Sounds like a blast, doesn't it? And I digress. The, the fascinating aspect of the meat that I discovered in, in the midst of extreme boredom was the improvement of strength and accuracy towards the bullseye as the kids grew older, stronger, and more experienced. At one meet, I remember there was a young elementary age boy struggled to draw the bow at the longer distance, right? Towards the end of the meet, they, they pulled him back a little bit further away from the target, and he, he barely made it halfway to the target across the gym. Yet an eighth grader you know, a few years older, could pull the line tight, could aim accurately, could control, control their in, internal emotions to improve accuracy, right? Archery, we know, is a, it's a discipline that's improved over time with patience, building strength, enduring through poor rounds, and practice over and over and over again. Most of the kids improve moving from the quivering, right, elementary boy shooting at a trajectory. I think he was aiming at the ceiling just to try to get it all the way to the target, to the, to the older, stronger eighth graders who were straight on, they had that string nice and tight and strong, and they would draw it back and see that arrow sail right towards the bullseye. If we took the bullseye away or the target away, there isn't much need for competition, is there? There would be no expectations, no drive to improve, no consequence for lack of discipline and practice, no understanding of whether or not you're getting closer to the target or not. And it's the same way when we shy away from the subject of spiritual growth and expectations of the Christian life, we accomplish kind of that same result as an archery tournament without a target. We're aimless. There's, we're not growing if we don't know what the target is or what the bullseye is. And in today's passage, the, the target of our lives, the expectations of Scripture for us, comes into clear view through Paul's writings to this church. What is the target? 
the bullseye of life after regeneration by the Spirit, after redemption, after placing our faith in Jesus. And this brings us to our main idea. Our main idea is this. What is our target? What is our bullseye? It's striving to be more like Jesus. That's the target of our life. When we come to know the saving power of Jesus, from there forward, we are striving to be more Christ-like, we call it. Verses 12 to 13. Bible says this, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, I want to pause there, right? Paul here commends this church for their progress in spiritual growth so far. He's saying, hey, you guys are doing good. You're heading in the right direction. He goes on, so now, not only as in my absence, hear this, but much more. Okay, so you're doing good, but now there's an expectation, what? Of more, We call this progress or spiritual growth, right? The target before them, the bullseye. He says, in my absence, right? Here it is. Here's the important part of this passage. All of it's important, but really kind of the main idea. Paul says this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, right? Proof of our salvation in Jesus is shown through working out that salvation now, both internally and externally, Paul goes on, for it is God who works in you, both to will, this is beautiful, and to work for his good pleasure. Now we can't afford to to read this void of the surrounding context. Obviously there's a whole letter before and after this. And we're going to look a little bit to the previous passage, which informs our reading and understanding of this present passage. Remember this, okay? We're coming off of the heels of of it, just this amazing portion of scripture that we know, we know as the Christ hymn, right? It's, it's Paul's Christ hymn. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote the Christ hymn, the humble love of Jesus, which led to his exaltation, to which the scriptures teach in verses 8 and 9. This is in Philippians 2 also. It says, and being found in human form, he, the he here is Jesus, right? The Son of God humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What's the result? It says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, right? A place, place him in a place of honor, the name that is above every name. Because of Christ's obedience, right? And, and we break this down in this way, his perfect obedience to the word of God or the law of God and his willing obedience to the plan of God, as Paul points out here, even unto death. God the Father has exalted him and honored, that's glorified Jesus, as the name above all names. This this is the Father's right and good response to the work of his son, Jesus. And so in response to the exaltation of Jesus because of his obedience, we, okay, who are in Christ Jesus, those who are Christians, are given instruction now on how to live. Do you see how the passages tie together? Right? We don't just stay the same, but we progress in the standing granted us through faith in Jesus. Right? We're given the target or the bullseye to aim for. And there's a few key words that Paul gives us here. Obedience, much more, so progress. Work out our salvation with a posture of fear and trembling. What does that say? Realizing our position to God the Father, His greatness, His holiness, His righteousness. This process of working on our salvation, we have a a theological word that we use for that. It's called sanctification, right? The growth in Christ-likeness. The Westminster Confession of Faith, I believe, gives us a great working definition of sanctification when it says this, 
Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in, in the whole man, right? The whole person after the image of God and are enabled more and more, this is important, to die unto sin and live into righteousness, right? To be changed, to be transformed. The question then comes forth, because of the work of Christ and our personal acceptance of his righteousness as our own, right? We take possession of that in a sense. His righteousness becomes our own. We ask this question, where do we go from here? Okay, what next? What now? Now, I want to pause. Point of caution when we ask this question. I don't want my question to be misunderstood. We do not add anything to the work of Christ. I want to be very clear on that. Our sanctification is not paying God back for his work. The the Christian life is not one where we receive Jesus and then labor solely on our own, but rather we are now compelled, that means moved, to respond to God's great love for us, displayed in the gospel, the good news of Jesus, through asking the, the question, where to now or what's the next step? Where do we go from here? Tim Keller, I think, gives us a good insight into this when he says this, quote, a Christian is literally Christ's one, right? His ownership. Someone who's not just vaguely influenced by Christian teaching. I think that's an important point that Keller makes there. We don't just, I understand some of Jesus. I like him. He was a good dude. It's more than that. We're not just vaguely influenced by Jesus. Here, this, this is important. But who has switched his or her fundamental allegiance, right? Our citizenship to the kingdom of God, to who? Jesus. That's what a Christian is. The question, where do we go from here? It is greatly influenced by our trust in the scriptures. First, this is another important point, as the very word of God. The Bible is the word of God written by human authors, inspired by God's spirit, without error, and is the means of growth and holiness in the Christian life. We hold this to be true in this church. Paul instructs us in this way in verse 16. We are holding fast, what? To the word of life. We hold fast to the Bible, the scriptures. Remember these two statements as we go through this sermon. Paul says this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And he later says, as we just read in verse 16, and hold fast to the word of life, the scriptures, the inerrant word of God. Those are two incredibly important parts of this message that I present to you this morning. Again, where do we go from here? What do these scriptures teach us? Number one, they teach us this, long obedience with the Spirit of Christ in you. Long obedience with the Spirit of Christ in you. We've established that we're not to remain the same once we receive Jesus as Savior, but must work out our salvation, uh, as the scriptures say here, with fear and trembling. But, but this is not, this is the good news. This is not accomplished as a solo mission. Check this out. I'm going to read verses 12 to 13 again. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, hear this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is important for it is who God who works in you. God who works in you both to will, and this is beautiful, and to work for his good pleasure. It's God's pleasure, in a sense, to work in you. 
What can we draw out of this? What encouragement do we have? Whenever you feel alone in your life, remember the teaching of Scripture. You are not living solo. If you're in Christ, you have the Spirit of God living in you. That's amazing. Working for His good pleasure. That's mind-blowing. We desire, because of our new nature in Christ, then to grow in obedience with the Spirit of Christ. In another Paul's writings, he, he urges us to keep in step with the Spirit of God. We can imagine this like a dance. When dancing with a partner, you try to keep in rhythm with them, with that partner, so not to what? Step on their toes or to get out of beat, right? In our obedience to the word of life, we keep in step with the spirit of God and do so with a disposition or an attitude that says here, we, ha- we can't leave this part off. The scriptures say, with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. Okay, what is, what is the scripture getting at? Remember who God is. And where he resides. And so in this, in this passage, we gain perspective on, here's, here's my made-up word for the, this morning, the massivity of God, right? The greatness of God. But also, what's beautiful is we see how big God is, but also how near he is, right? Because it says, the God who lives where? In you. The nearness and tender care of our Father God. God lives in you, which should jar us to acknowledge that if we truly reflect, like when I think about that, amazing, but then I'm like, I remember what went through my mind the other day. God knows that thought. God knows that temptation that I had. It should jar us to acknowledge that if we truly reflect on the sinful thoughts that creep into our head and out into our actions, we should be in fear and trembling. But beyond just, just that understanding, we must understand again who God is in relation to us. Hear this, just how great and awesome and magnificent and glorious and perfect he truly is. We call him holy. And whenever the Bible talks about the holiness of God, it doesn't just say it once. It says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Because one holy is just not enough. The Proverbs teach this in, in Proverbs 1, 7. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom. In our study of, of the Proverbs earlier this year, we came to, to understand that wisdom is taking the understanding and knowledge that we have and applying that to actions and good judgment, right? A fool doesn't do that. A fool knows what to do and they keep just doing whatever they want. A wise person knows what to do and then applies that to their life, Obey the Lord God who lives in you and and empowers you and entrusts you the, the word of life. And remember that you're not alone in this task. God, hear this truth again. God works in you for his good pleasure. Point number two, we learn from this passage, long obedience toward the righteousness won at Calvary. Long obedience toward the righteousness won at Calvary. One of the main points I'm going to make here, I'm going to use Israel as an, as an illustration early on in their deliverance from Egypt, that there was a desire that they wanted to go back, right? And so remember this, don't go back. Don't go back. The scriptures 
established clearly the result of faith in Jesus as his justifying work. That's what it's called. It's called justification or, or the declaration that we're not guilty. Mere belief and trust in the perfection of, of Christ, his death and resurrection, secures our salvation, justification, and grants us to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Okay, We have that already according to 2 Corinthians 5.21. And we walk toward it now. So we have that secured through faith in Jesus. Now we walk toward it continually as the working out of our salvation with, as Paul said here, fear and trembling, verses 14 and 15. I tagged on a little bit of the, of the last section there. So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, hear this, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Jesus has won for us righteousness so that we may walk in his good work that he has prepared for us. That is scriptural. We are not one into righteousness to return repeatedly to our old ways, but rather to be transformed by the renewing of our minds and hearts so that we may be able to discern the will of God for our lives. His will does not include running back to our sinful and, and crooked ways. Rather, this is, this is the target, remember? This is the target, that we worship and honor God with our lives as living sacrifice for his service. Paul would mention that in Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is our purpose, that we walk in lives of blamelessness and innocence. Thus, we, we can't go back to the way we were. The, the Israelites, again, teach us an important lesson as they were freed from slavery under the oppression of Pharaoh, and yet soon after they were granted freedom, what? They began to grumble and dispute amongst themselves, longing to go back where? Into enslavement. Take us back to what we're familiar with. They wanted to go back into the chains that bound them. This, this is the importance of our first point, we're not at this alone. God is working in you. We have the spirit of Christ. We hold fast to his word, walking in the deliverance he has granted to us. And so we don't go back. There's, the Bible has humor in it. There's some very funny parts. And I think there's a, there's a funny proverb, 2611. I remember as a child growing up, this was probably my dad's favorite thing to say to me when I'd keep messing up over the same thing over and over again. He'd say, hey, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Ooh, something to think about, right? But it's, it's both humorous and repulsive, isn't it, to think about that? I don't, that's what our sin should be like to us. When you, you think about that, the word that should come to mind is, that's disgusting, right? That's gross. It's definitely not something I want to think about at 1140 in the morning when I'm thinking about going to get lunch, Keith, all right? <laughs> the same attitude must be present in our hearts and actions as we are repulsed by the sins that marred us prior to God's amazing adoption of us as sons and daughters, okay? Don't go back to slavery, don't go back to the chains. Flee from the sexual immorality that gripped your hearts, pornography's lure and homosexuality's grip. Flee from the jealousy and envy of your soul as you look upon what others have and covet, covet it as your own. 
Run from the self-righteousness and judgmental spirit that so easily binds us through the sin of pride and self-reliance, right? Do not go back to slavery, but walk in the light of the righteousness that has been won for you at redemption's bloody hill. And that brings us to our third point, long obedience that shines as a light in the darkness. Long obedience that shines as a light in the darkness, the, the blamelessness of a Christian life is one that shines as a light in the midst of a world that is fallen and broken. We're grieved by the fallenness of this world just this past weekend and throughout this week, right, as we've seen the things that have gone on in the Middle East. This, this shining light has no shred of pride or arrogance, no self-righteousness, but shines brightly as a reflection of the glory won for us through Jesus Verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. Notice this, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom, here it is, you shine as lights in the world. Notice here the location that Paul places this church. He uses this phrase, in the midst of, not separated away. Not in a monastery with large walls erected to protect us from the world, but in the midst of the world, what? Shining as a light. Okay, we're not not recluses hiding away, locking the doors, keeping everybody out, but we're shining as a light in the world. This is the working out of our faith. This is the mission. It's not all about you and your personal spiritual growth. It is, it is this growing out so that others may see your good deeds and rejoice in the Lord. So that others may be drawn to Christ through the light of your life. Jesus says as much in Matthew 5, 14 to 16. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. That's one of my favorite kind of word pictures in scripture. That's what the people of God are. That's what the church is. It's a city on a hill that can't be hidden. You can't keep it out of sight. It's there for everybody to see. I can remember uh, in my younger days growing up in Southern California, occasionally we would venture across the desert and make our way towards Nevada and towards uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. And in Las Vegas, there's a hotel there called the Luxor that looks like a big pyramid, looks like an Egyptian pyramid. And then atop of that hotel, there's this incredibly bright beam of light that shines up. I actually think they got in trouble. I think it was the brightest light in the world at one time. And it was like distracting the pilots as they were trying to land their planes coming in. But I remember as you would drive through the desert, as we were getting close to Las Vegas, you knew you were getting close. Why? Because you could see that light shining in the middle of the desert. That's what the church should be like. That as people are going through their spiritual and physical deserts, as they are coming closer to the church, they can see the light of Christ off in the distance, drawing them to that. A shining city on a hill. Reading on. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, right? That makes no sense. I don't turn on the lights in my office and then go get an Amazon box and put it over the top of them. But on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
right? We're not, we're not just growing in Christ's likeness to store up a bunch of treasure for ourselves, but we're growing in Christ's likeness so that the world can see our good works and say, I want to know who your God is. I want to get to know Yahweh, Father God. I want to know who Jesus is in your life. Why are you different? What compels you to live like this? A dual purpose here. As the people of God, our church is a city set on a hill so that others may see the witness of, in our particular context, North Bullet Christian Church, and do this, rejoice in the Lord. In other words, be drawn to Jesus, a relationship with Jesus. And this occurs also personally as we live out the righteousness won for us through Jesus in our everyday lives. I've I've used the phrase in each one of the points, long obedience. Okay, I borrow that phrase from uh, uh, a dead pastor named Eugene Peterson who wrote a book called Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I love the title of that book because it really pictures the Christian life. Our, our, our spiritual growth is just a long and steady obedience, okay? In a world that wants everything quick, that sounds so boring, doesn't it? But it's what God has called us to, just long, steady obedience. Spiritual growth displayed in those small, quiet, everyday moments. Even in the seemingly small things, You're striving to be blameless and innocent children of God. Finally, our salvation in Jesus and obedience should drive us to be this, number four, to be people of great joy, right? Long obedience that rejoices in all things. The people of God should never be depressed. We should always be joyful people. So we have the joy of the Lord within us. Paul now gives us a view into his own soul. Right? And we know in Paul's life, like walking with Jesus has not been easy on him. He suffered great persecution and difficulty, relational rejection, physical pain, right? What, where is he writing this letter from? Prison, right? He's in jail. He's in the slammer. He's saying, rejoice in the Lord. And yet he, he longs for the vision of this also in this passage. That his life has been lived with a purpose. It's why he would use the word. He says he's, uh, let him be proud that he's not run the race in vain. In other words, let him, let me give thanksgiving when I face the Lord one day that I didn't waste my time. That's what Paul's getting at in this passage. That he may be able to, to give all and rejoice in living life to the glory of God, right? Verses 16 to 18, holding fast to the word of life. We've already hit that point, right? We hold fast to the word of God. We will never, as, a, as the pastor of this church, we will never flee from the truth of God's word. We will never elevate man's opinion about what God has said to us clearly in the scriptures, says, so that in the day of Christ, we believe what Paul is saying here is that Jesus isn't finished yet. He's coming back. He will return in glory one day. Ushering in, the scriptures say, new heavens and new earth. That's exciting. That should bring joy. So in the day of Christ, I may be proud or grateful or thankful that I may glory in the Lord that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, right? That I didn't waste my time. God, I didn't waste my time here. I gave everything that I had to see your people grow in holiness. He says, even if I am poured out as a drink offering, right? Even if I lose my life, 
Even if I shed my blood for the gospel upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, what's his conclusion? I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. What a beautiful conclusion to what he has to say here. Paul Paul is instructing us here, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Hold fast to the word of life, the scriptures, so that we can be certain that those who have invested spiritually in our lives have not done so in vain. Producing no results, right? The the statement begs the question, Christian, here's the question. If you're, so Paul's basically, he's nearing the end here. He's getting close to the finish line. If you were nearing the end, if you're on your deathbed right now, you had the opportunity to teach someone one thing that you would change in your life, what would it be? Wrestle with that question right now. What would you change? Right? What am I getting at? Don't live a life that's purposeless. Don't run the race in vain. Run to the glory of God. And in in holding to the word of life, you can rejoice in all things, right? In the midst of wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and famines, life struggles and difficulties, knowing that you walk forward with the purpose of growing in Jesus and being a light in the world, knowing that you have the love of God deep within you, God's at work in you, should bring you this. The result should be a deep and lasting joy that cannot be shaken. Eugene Peterson says it this way. He says, joy is not a requirement of Christian discipleship. It is a consequence. It is not that we have to acquire uh, in order to experience life in Christ. It is what comes to us when we are walking in the way of faith and obedience. It's a natural consequence of walking in Christ-likeness. No matter what we face, joy is a sure indicator of our life in Jesus. Right? And here's the thing. I'm not talking about cheap happiness. Okay, happiness is cheap. I, I go to, to Wendy's. I get me a thick old chocolate frosty. I eat that thing. I'm happy until the morning when I step on the scale. Then I'm not happy anymore, right? <laughs> We're not talking about that. I'm speaking of a deep and lasting contentment and comfort and knowing that God is in control. That Jesus is on his throne and he will return in victory over all of his enemies. I think Isaiah 52, 7 to 12 gives us just a picture of that hope. As much as Isaiah can convey in, in words for us to draw from, he says this, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. I hope I bring you good news today who publishes peace, who brings good news of of happiness or joy, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns, right? In the midst of your grief and your pain and your worry, God reigns right now. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice together. Hear this, they sing for joy. For eye to eye, they, they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Let us hold fast to that truth. Jesus is coming back. Break forth together. What's the result? Break forth together into singing. You waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth. Hear this. All the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. That should be our prayer right now. 
if ever a time that the nations would see salvation through Christ. Verse 11, depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her. Hear this, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord, right? Sanctify, be like Jesus, that's the target, that's the bullseye, that's the aim. Verse 12, for you shall not go out in haste and you shall not go in flight. For the Lord, hear where he's at, this is awesome, for the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. What does that mean? God's up all around us, isn't he? And at the beginning of Philippians, it says, he's even in you. He's everywhere, all around. That should be an incredible comfort to you. Be comforted by the word of the Lord. We know that we are aiming towards, right, that that target, that that bullseye of Christ-likeness. We know that we're not alone as we strive towards his righteousness because his spirit dwells within us and empowers us. We know that we have purpose in life as we are set apart as lights shining in the midst of a dark world. And we have joy that is unshakable, that that cannot be pulled away from us because it rests in the work of God in us, right? He works for his pleasure. That work of the Lord is a as the author of Hebrews says, I love this. He says that that is a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. It's founded in the good news of Jesus, that God left heaven and became a humble man, that he took on flesh, that he lived perfectly in our place in full obedience to the law and the will of God, even unto death on a cross, that Jesus shed his blood on the cross. He is the once and for all sacrifice for our sins. That Jesus died bodily on the cross and he went into the grave. But on the third day, Jesus raised from the grave in victory over sin and death. Thousands of people witnessed him resurrected and alive. And they were so thoroughly transformed that they willingly laid down their lives for Jesus. Jesus ascended to heaven where he currently is seated at the right hand of the Father. And one day Jesus will return in glory and make all things new. Amen.